Oh man, it is so great to be with you guys today. As, as most of you know, our family was out for a couple weeks at the beginning of the year, uh, but it has been like a month since I've preached, because I preached last, like the third week of Advent, and this is the first time since then. So that's the longest I've gone in a while, which is a good thing, by the way. Um, I don't have something relevant or interesting to say 52 weeks out of the year, um, believe it or not. And uh, the beauty of it is the Lord is bringing together a team of teachers around here uh, who are doing a great job. And so that's been our goal from day one, is not that I would be preaching every single week of the year, um, but that ultimately we would have a preaching team. And I think there's a lot of benefit to a variety of voices. Uh, because you don't all uh, naturally connect with me. Uh, some of you more readily connect with Justin or with Taylor, and I think that's as it should be. That's a beautiful thing. And so very thankful to Justin and Taylor, who have been preaching over the last few weeks. And last week, whether you realized it or not, was a big milestone for me uh, since we started all of this just a few years ago now. Uh, last Sunday was the first Sunday that I had absolutely nothing to do with the service whatsoever. I didn't have a role in planning it. I didn't do anything in the service. I, I originally wasn't even gonna be here last week because I, I had a wedding to do in New Orleans. Uh, but I came back Sunday morning and just got to be in a worship gathering here with my family, got to take communion with my family, uh, which was wonderful. And what a blessing to be able, one, to, to like have that at this, at this juncture, you know, like just a few years into planning a church. Uh, I know many church plants that are far older than ours that don't have kind of the bullpen of leadership that the Lord has brought together here and um, just to be able to be in a service and not have to do anything, which was a little weird, by the way. I, I showed up and I was like, hey, I'm here. Do, like, do I need to help with anything? Everybody's like, we're good. So I was like, that was strange, um, but a good strange. So uh, happy to be back today. I've got about six weeks worth of sermons here. Um, so this may take a while. Uh, I'm kidding. John 16. Uh, let's start in verse 16 this morning. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, Is this what you were asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. 
I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to begin with just a basic question today, which is this. Why in the world does Jesus talk like this? Right? Like it is impossible to read the scriptures and not at times feel like, what is, what is he doing? Like, what is he saying? Why is he saying things in this way? Why does he seemingly speak in riddles at times? Especially at this point in the narrative, like where we're literally hours away from him being arrested. And, and these are his final words to his disciples before he's arrested and before he's crucified. Why is he not speaking with like the utmost clarity at this point? You know, I've done a lot of public speaking in my life, and I've been fascinated over the last, I don't know, 10 to 12 years with the rise in what I would call, I guess, popular public speaking. I'm I'm thinking like of TED Talks here. Like, that's been a really interesting thing to me. Like, that that's a thing in our culture that people sit around and basically watch lectures, um, and that that has become somewhat popular. These little, uh, you know, 15-minute speeches on a host of topics, right? Like, it has become a part of American culture. And if you've watched many TED Talks, you know that some are better than others, right? But consistently, the best TED Talks, the best speeches, presentations, lectures, they do a few key things. One of the things they do is they rope you in with some some sort of hook at the beginning, some sort of compelling question or statement. Uh, What if dead bodies were buried in suits made of mushrooms so that they could decompose more effectively? Um... What if uh, you could effectively dry your hands with only one paper towel? What if I told you that everybody in this room for your entire life, you've been tying your shoes the wrong way? These are actual TED Talks, actual TED Talks that begin with those kinds of like compelling questions where you're like, hmm, okay, I've never thought about that before, or that is an interesting question to throw out there. That's, that's a big part of it, is, is, is we get you hooked in at the very beginning. A second key characteristic of a good presentation is that you laugh at some point. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Um, even when a talk is somewhat serious in nature, if a, if a speaker can get you to laugh at some point, that actually like endears 
steers you to the speaker. And it really is a, an effective communication tactic if you can pull it off. All TED Talks don't do that, but, but the good ones do seem to. Another thing is that often you are presented with some kind of new information that challenges your thinking, uh, that causes you to question like accepted patterns of thought or ways of thinking, or it presents you with some new information that makes you go, wow, I never knew that before. What if that actually is the case? And, and it gets you, it gets you like doing this internal rumination thing of like mulling that over and like, what are the implications of that? And is that actually true? Like if, if all you're hearing are just things that you already know, the speech is boring, isn't it? Like if I'm telling you things that you aren't aware of or th questions you've never considered before and it's causing you to ponder it, then it is naturally more effective. Uh, but then the last thing is that there has to be clarity, right, in all of that. How many times have you walked out of a lecture or a sermon and felt like, I don't even know what that was about, right? Like, I don't even know what the point of that was or what the, what the speaker was trying to get across. Like, clarity is the foundation of effective communication, period. If you're taking any kind of a communications course in college, you are going to come away with an understanding that we have to be clear or we are not communicating effectively, which begs the question, why is Jesus so obtuse? Right? Is he a bad communicator? Right? Is that what's going on here? Why does he speak in metaphor, in parable, in symbol? Is something else going on? Why are his followers so often going, what does he mean? Like, what is this about? Let me quickly remind us where we are here in John's gospel. Uh, we are in what is traditionally known as the upper room discourse. It's just a few chapters here in John that are given that title. That's a title we give to this section. Um, and we, we give this section the title, the upper room discourse, not because Jesus at some point said, I am now beginning the upper room discourse, uh, but instead because that's where it all starts. It starts after the last supper in the upper room, but eventually this conversation moves outside. It moves to the Mount of Olives where Jesus will ultimately pray his high priestly prayer and eventually be arrested. Um, as I said a few minutes ago, this is the night of the Last Supper. That has all happened. It's the night that Jesus will be betrayed. Um, and Jesus has said a number of important things in a very short span of time. Let me just recap a few of these real quick. Just in chapters 14 to 16, Jesus has said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be, may be where I am. He has said, I am the way and, and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He has said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. If you love me, keep my commands. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. If the world hates you keep in mind that it hated me first but when he the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all truth like 
just all of these like amazing, like uh, most famous things Jesus ever said type statements are all like crammed into this two chapter section known as the upper room discourse. And if I were to try in any way, and it's, this may be a fool's errand, but if I were to try in any way to sum up what's happening here, it'd be something like this. That Jesus is saying, I am leaving you, but take heart. This is a good thing because the Holy Spirit is coming to you. In our text today, Jesus lands the plane on this upper room discourse, and yet his words prompt a ton of questions from his disciples. Let's look at verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. So when we read this, when we read this, we have the benefit of hindsight, don't we? We know that Jesus will be crucified. We know that he will be resurrected. But that did not fully compute to the disciples at this point. Jesus has said many things, and we look at it and we go, well, this is what Jesus is talking about. But the disciples hear it and they're like, what? what like, what are you talking about? And in all fairness, Jesus does not simply say, listen, I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be tortured, and then I'm going to be crucified. I am going to actually physically die. But do not worry, I am going to come back from the dead, and when I come back from the dead, X, Y, and Z are going to happen. He doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't provide that kind of information. He doesn't provide that kind of detail. And so his disciples are left going, what, what's a little while? Like, what, what in the world is he talking about? He's saying these things in this very particular way, but his disciples don't get it because he's not sharing all the information and he's not being detailed. Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So again, Jesus is telling them what is going to happen, but he is leaving out key details. Um, he, he doesn't tell them exactly how everything is going to go down. But notice he does tell them how they're going to feel doesn't he? Like you are going to experience great sorrow, even while everybody else around you may seem to be rejoicing, but don't worry. Your sorrow is not going to last forever. I will see you again and you will have joy. And it's going to be the kind of joy that no one can take away from you. And he also uses this metaphor here of, of pregnancy, which is actually a, like a fairly common biblical metaphor. Like, like you see it like in the prophet Isaiah, for example. And, and it really really is an apt metaphor here, isn't it? Like Jesus has been talking all throughout John, as Taylor mentioned last week, about his hour. He, he said so often, my hour has not come, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. But now we've gotten to this point and Jesus is like, okay, 
My hour has now come. And, and Jesus says, this is like pregnancy. Like it is, it is about waiting. And, and in the waiting, there's a lot of difficulty, isn't there? There's a lot of discomfort in the waiting. And, and, and what it's all leading to ultimately can create some anxiety, right? Like he says, like for the pregnant woman, like there is a certain amount of sorrow when her hour has come. Believe me, I, I've been in five childbirths at this point. Like this is about to get rough, right? This is about to be difficult. But what's on the other side of it? This is Jesus's point. What's on the other side of everything that's about to happen is going to make you forget even how difficult what is to come will be or was. So it's a very appropriate thing to say, but yet his disciples are like, but what is it? You know, like what exactly is going to happen? Now, there is a little bit of a turn in verse 25 as Jesus responds to their confusion. He does explain himself a bit. Verse 25, he says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the father. Jesus says, I've said these things to you. And he uses a Greek word here, paroimia. He says, I, I, I've said these things to you in paramia, which is a Greek word that can mean uh, parables. Uh, it can mean allegories. Uh, or it can just mean, as I think it does here, just figurative speech, using metaphors, using symbols, being figurative in your language. He says, I have, I have spoken to you in that way, but there is coming a day where I will not speak to you in, in paramia anymore. I'm going to speak to you plainly, is the translation. Right. And then he gets even more plain. Verse 28. I came from the father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the father. But he still doesn't give great details, does he? But nevertheless, this seems to be somewhat satisfactory to the disciples. His disciples say, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. So here's my thesis today. I think God still communicates with us in much the same way. Albeit with a couple of significant differences that I'm going to point out in a minute. But I think God still communicates with us in much the same way. And that should bring us great comfort. What I mean by that is God communicates with us in a way where we don't always have all the answers. We don't always know exactly what's going to happen. In fact, I would say most of the time, we don't really know what's going to happen. Even though there are things we know. A few reasons why. First, you know, one of our greatest sin temptations as humans is the desire for knowledge. One of our greatest sin temptations as humans is the desire for knowledge. What? Like, isn't knowledge a great thing? Knowledge power, right? Right? Isn't that something we should desire? And to an extent, yes. But if you go back to the garden, Eve's sin isn't just based on the fact that the fruit looked delicious, is it? Genesis 3, 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate it. So we saw the tree looked good, the fruit looked delicious. Oh, and it's good to make one wise. She took the fruit and ate it. 
Our problem is not simply that we want knowledge. The problem is that we want all knowledge. Like what we actually desire, whether we realize it or not, is omniscience. I want to know all things. We want to be like God. This is what Eve's after in the garden. I think it's a big promise of the internet and of just modern technology in general. And yet by all measurable statistics, we are incapable of handling more information in a healthy way, at least. Right. It's not a stretch to say, and and studies are affirming this, that our increased access to knowledge is resulting in part, at least, in greater rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide. I was just reading a book last night that said in 2008, so the year after the iPhone came out, in 2008, a study showed that the amount of like, knowledge, the amount of information that Americans were consuming was three times what it was in 1960. So that was in 2008. Right after the iPhone came out, think about now. Think about all the other like outlets that are available to you, all the other like sources of knowledge and information that are available to you. We're consuming at least three times as much information each day as somebody would have been in 1960. And yet, one of the things that Scripture repeatedly says about us is this: We are children. We are children. Parents, do you tell your children everything? I mean everything. No, of course you don't. At least not if you love them. You share things that are age appropriate. Why? Because they can't handle all the information, right? They can't process it all. They can't respond to it all. It wouldn't be healthy. It could actually be detrimental to them. Too much knowledge can be harmful. So why does Jesus talk like this? Because there are truths that he wants to communicate, but there are also things that we simply cannot handle, that we cannot deal with. Jesus, I don't think, I don't think Jesus is being obtuse. I think he is being discerning and loving in what he communicates and how he communicates it. What do his disciples need to know? Things are going to get hard. You are going to feel sad and defeated, but don't worry, I will see you again and you will experience joy that will be never ending. How is that all going to happen? What are the details of that? When exactly is that going to happen? Where exactly are you going, Jesus? How do we get to where you're going? How do I follow you? What are the signs of that going to be? They have all of these questions about this, and Jesus brings them back to not just 30,000 feet, but like 50,000 feet, and goes, no, 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 don't worry about all that, right? Things are going to be bad, then things are going to be good. That's basically what he's telling them. So when things are bad, you, you can remember, wait, but he told us this was going to happen, and he told us things were going to be good later on. You won't worry because you will recognize that what I've said is true. The reason why the desire for knowledge is a sin temptation for us is because it is rooted in a lack of trust in God and a desire for personal control. Right? I want to know because I, I, don't, I don't know that I fully bought into the notion that he is good. And I want to know because I really want to be the one steering this ship. 
I really want to be the one who's in control of my life and what's going on around me. So I want all the knowledge. I want all the details. You know, I think that's totally what's going on in the garden. The seed that the serpent planted in Eve was God is keeping something from you. God is keeping something from you. And you know what? That was true. That wasn't a lie. That was 100% true. God was keeping things from them, but not because he was untrustworthy and not because he was evil, but precisely because he was good. He was a good father. He is a good father. It seems to me that a key to our contentment in relationship to God is to get really comfortable in our role as child and his role as father. And the only reason why that would be difficult is if you believe, like Eve, that maybe he isn't good. Or maybe he somehow doesn't actually know what he's doing, even though he apparently made all of this. And somehow I know better. A second reason why Jesus talks like this is because he desires for us and his disciples specifically, for us not just to know things, but he desires for us to know the truth. In other words, you can know a lot of things, but be oblivious to what really matters, right? Jesus is far more concerned that his followers know and believe the truth, like capital T truth, than he is that they have answers to all of their questions. The reason why I think that's the case is because knowledge alone cannot set you free from sin and death. Knowledge alone cannot set you free from sin and death, but the truth, capital T, the truth can. This takes us back to John 8, uh, verses 31 through 38. If you want to turn there, John 8, 31 through 38, where Jesus says to a group of Jews, if you abide in my word, like if you, if you hold fast, if you remain in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if you, if you are rooted in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say we will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, hint, hint, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son, if the capital T truth sets you free, Free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. In other words, Jesus is saying, You're listening to the devil. <laughs> you're listening to the devil, and you're making decisions based on the quote-unquote knowledge that you've gotten from him. This is why the truth of Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing, as we read a minute ago. They've believed the knowledge that they've gotten from a source other than the word of Christ, other than abiding in him. And by the way, what is the opposite of truth? It's a lie. Like, knowledge 
can either go, you know, can go either way. Like knowledge is knowledge, but the question is, is it true or is it a lie? John 8, verse 44. Jesus carries on this conversation with these Jews. He gets down to verse 44 and he says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of liars. These were not devil worshipers, were they? Like, these were not guys who were like prostrating themselves before Satan. No, they were Jews. They were good Jews. Like they were seeking to follow the scriptures as they understood them. But what Jesus was basically telling them was that the knowledge that you think you have has been co-opted by the enemy, and what you believe about the knowledge that you have is false. It is a lie. Because capital T truth is standing right in front of you, and you think that the knowledge that you have negates what I'm saying about myself, Jesus says. So Jesus speaks to his disciples in this way because they are children, they can't handle all information, but also because Jesus' primary desire is that they have the truth and not just more information. Because the truth is truly what matters. Now, a third thing for us to realize is this. We, all of us, we live in a post-resurrection world where we have two things that the disciples did not have at this point, at least not completely. One, we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit living within us, those of us who have faith in Christ, and we have the complete canon of Scripture. These guys at this point in time would have had the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Scriptures. We also have the writings of the apostles as well. And as monumental as those two things are, it is still true that we do not have, nor do we need, all information. All details. Even when it comes to faith, many of us have unanswered questions, right? Many of us have things we are curious about. Many of us th have things we wonder about. And God is perfectly fine with us having unanswered questions. God is not bending over backwards to try to answer all of our questions for us. What he's still far more concerned with is that we have the truth. For the information that we have, that we have... That we, that we view it truthfully rather than believing lies. This takes us back to Taylor's message last week. What did Jesus say the Holy Spirit would do? What did Jesus say the Holy Spirit would do? This is earlier in chapter 16 here, verses 12 and 13. Well, first, before he mentions the Holy Spirit, he says to his disciples, he says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. In other words, I'm not telling you everything precisely because you cannot handle it. But then he says, but when he, the spirit of truth, don't even call him the Holy Spirit. He calls him the spirit of truth. When he comes, he will guide you into all what? Truth. Not into all knowledge, not into all information, but into what is far more important. All truth. Now here's the question. Can you be okay with that? 
Can you be okay with that? The goal here is that our lack of all the answers, that that would not spark within us some kind of quest to attain all knowledge, but rather that it would spark within us a deep and abiding trust in Christ, who is the truth. And this may be a little bit of a hot take, I don't know, but, but this is where we can get into trouble even with Bible study. And, and even with preaching, we don't, listen, we don't study the Bible for more knowledge about the Bible. We study the Bible for a greater understanding of the truth so that we can live in this world that is broken and combat the lies that we encounter daily. But if you study your Bible simply in the pursuit of knowledge, and that's not rooted in the leadership of the Holy Spirit, you can very easily miss the truth. That was exactly what Jesus accused the Jews of back in John 5. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You know the scriptures backwards and forwards, Jesus said. And yet here's the truth of the scripture standing right in front of you and you don't recognize it. You know it, but you don't know the truth. By the way, this is why preaching that just gives you Bible knowledge or self-help tips, but doesn't give you the gospel is bad preaching. No matter how skilled or talented or effective of a public speaker the preacher may be. What I need most is uh, not to know who Hosea is. As, as good as that may seem. What I need to understand is how the story of Hosea points me to the truth of Christ. If, if I study the book of Hosea... And I come away not understanding that Hosea is a redeemer who saves, who redeems his wife, who is a sinner enslaved to her sin at great personal sacrifice, at great expense of love and sacrifice to him. If I come away from the book of Hosea not recognizing that Hosea is pointing me to Christ, I have missed the truth of the book of Hosea. Does that make sense? And by the same token, what I need most are not a few great tips on how to communicate well with my spouse, as good as that may be. What I need most is to know how the truth of Christ changes me from the inside out through the power of the Holy Spirit and provides me with a model of sacrificial love that I can look to as I seek to love my spouse, right? I look to Christ and his sacrifice, his agape, that he laid down his life for me, and then I look at that model and I seek to pull it into my life and live it out towards the people around me. So no matter how good a message may seem to be, how, how like relevant it may seem to you, or how, like, how much it might resonate with you, the question we have to ask is, is it true? No matter how compelling it might be. Now, Jesus actually ends this discourse by giving us an explanation of why he has said the things that he said. I don't know if you noticed this. And his intention here may not be what you expect. Verse 33. 
I have said these things to you that in me you may have what? Peace. Isn't that fascinating? He doesn't say, I've said these things to you so that when all these things happen, you're going to know exactly what's going on. No, I've said these things to you so that you will have peace. Because here's the deal. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Some translations say you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So what is the truth here? What is the truth that brings me peace? The truth is that no matter what's on fire around me, no matter what's going down, no matter what's blowing up in my personal life or at work or with my family or whatever, I serve a risen Savior who has overcome the brokenness of this world, who has overcome the sin that you and I are living in and are, are like privy to and are affected by, like and are victimized by on a daily basis. Our Savior has overcome it. That is what is true. And if he, if he is my hope then even in the midst of really terrible stuff, guess what I can have? Peace. And not just because of knowledge, but also because of the truth that his very presence has come to live within me. And I have actually become his temple. That what he said is true. Earlier in John, he said, we will come to you and we will make our home within you. So what in the world do I have to be worried about? What do I have to be anxious about? Even when like horrible things are happening, I can rest in what is true. And that doesn't mean I'm not grief-stricken. That doesn't mean I'm not affected by what's going on. But I can know the capital T truth that Christ has overcome the world. Amen? That I can know the truth and the truth will set me free. I, this is why believers, Scripture says, should be people who grieve differently than everybody else, by the way. That even when we encounter death, even unexpected death, even untimely death, even things that we would never hope for, that we can be a people who grieve and yet grieve differently from those who have no hope, who don't know the truth. So if you were to do an evaluation of your life right now, what is your level of peace? What role does anxiety play in your life? Where does depression creep in for you? Guys, it is impossible to live in this world and not experience those things. And, and yet, we seem to be at this point in human history where those things are not just occasional, they're pervasive, right? Everybody's dealing with them. What are the places in your life where you're trying to fill yourself with knowledge? You think, man, if I just know enough, like if I just have a, a better idea of what's going on, then everything's going to be fine. But maybe that knowledge has not been contextualized by the truth. Let me leave you this morning with the words of Jesus in Matthew, because it seems to be the case that what he wants for us is actually possibly the opposite of what many of us are pursuing. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. At this time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, 
unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Scripture says we are children, but most of us are not living in relationship to Christ as if he is father and we are child. What does Jesus want for us? He wants us to become children in the everyday and my prayer for us, especially as we're in this season as a church where we're formulating our personal rules of life, my prayer for us is that we would be a people who are cultivating lifestyles of spirit-led humility. That we would curate not these lives where we think we are becoming wise and mature and knowledgeable, but where we are embracing how much we don't know and how deeply in need of rescue we all actually are. In other words, that we would embrace that we are children and that he is a good, loving father who through faith in Christ has made a way for us to be reconciled to him, adopted into his family so that we can dwell with him forever as his children. That is the truth. No matter what you think you know, that is what matters. May God bless the hearing and reading of his word. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray this morning that in the midst of the busyness and noise and brokenness of our world, God, that we would not be looking to things other than the truth of the gospel to be sources of hope for us. And I pray, God, even right now in our minds and in our hearts, you would illuminate for us what those things are for us. What are the things that we are looking to other than you, that we are putting on a pedestal, uh, that we are seeking to find hope in? And I pray, Father, that you would give us a deep and abiding sense, even right now, through your spirit, of how bankrupt those things can be outside of you. I pray, Lord, that truly we would deeply drink of the water of life, the water that breeds within us a deep and abiding sense of peace because it is rooted in the truth of who Christ is and what he has done for us. And I pray, Father, that it would be life-changing for us as we assume the posture of children, not the posture of experts, but the posture of those who are vulnerable, those who are humble, those who are deeply in need of your presence, your spirit, your leadership, that we would be people who seek to abide in your very words and that in them we find life and freedom. And I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.